This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and I'm flying solo again this week, as Matthew is still away on his secret mission. But I have a great show in store for you today. We're going to be joined by author David R. George III to talk about his new book, One Constant Star. And joining me also for the feature, in place of Matthew, is Dan Gunther from Treklit Reviews, who also writes for TrekCore, and who you know from previous episodes of the show. He does join Matthew and me from time to time. Before we get into that discussion and interview, however, I have a short little news segment for you today. One story primarily, and this is about the eugenics wars, Greg Cox's Eugenics Wars Duology, in fact. Now, this book has been around for a long time. It's even available in audio format on Audible. But German publisher Crosscult, who does some of the most fantastic book designs and book covers that you'll find anywhere, and we talk about them here on the show fairly often, I think, they are preparing to publish a German edition of Greg Cox's Eugenics Wars And they're doing a cover redesign. And I have to say that this cover redesign is really amazing. It almost looks like a comic book, actually. In fact, when I very first saw it, that's what I thought it was. Because you'll remember that we we actually did the Khan comic series here on the show a few months ago. Or, I don't know, time flies for me. Maybe it was six months ago. But we did it here on the show. But these are really, really cool covers. They are sort of a a sepia, beige, tannish color with black and red. So it's it's not a duotone exactly, but it's it's very subdued. And it looks a lot like propaganda posters, which is very fitting for the subject of the book. And as is often the case with Cross Cult's novel covers, if you put the two covers together, they come together seamlessly to make this perfect poster with Khan in the center. And then the red is like a sunrise coming in the back. It's very reminiscent of the flag of Imperial Japan that was used during the wars. And then you've got soldiers coming from behind Khan. You've got helicopters going off one side. You've got uh, the, I guess it's the Botany Bay launching on the other side. And then you've got what looks kind of like 
DNA, it, it's very abstract, but I assume it represents the genetic enhancements of Khan and the other Superman, the other augments. Really beautiful covers. In fact, just before I started recording this, I saw a tweet go by from someone, and the tweet was in German, but they had taken a shot of their bookshelf with all their German editions of various Star Trek novels, including Destiny and other series, and they're just seamless. It, it amazes me how precise CrossCult is with the spines of their books, especially how the text lines up perfectly, how the images line up perfectly. So these are really, really cool covers. I'll put a link in the show notes and you can check it out. These are going to drop in December and January. So if you're one of our German listeners, and I know we do have a number of you out there, look for these at the end of the year, December, and then in January, and uh, and pick them up. And even if you already have these novels, you're probably going to want to pick these up if you like to collect. I know I have these novels actually in print, the American editions. And if I were to go in a bookstore and I saw these, I would buy them again anyway. That's how nice they look. All right, the other item I have up for you here is not really, I'm not going to talk much about this. It's about Lost Apollo. I talked a little about Lost Apollo Part 1, and I mentioned that Lost Apollo Part 2 would be dropping later this month. And if I remember correctly, I probably said I was expecting it towards the end of June, maybe at least another week out from here, maybe two weeks from the release date. And in fact, it's already here. I read it today. I really enjoyed it. And I, like I said last week, this this story highlights how these characters in the Abramsverse can tell Star Trek stories. We can tell Star Trek stories with them, just not on the big screen, because this story really feels like an original series episode. It's really nicely done. We're going to talk about it more when Matthew gets back. I, I really don't want to review it on my own. I don't want to delve into it too much because I want to know what Matthew thinks about it, and I expect you probably do as well. So go pick it up. If you haven't read Lost Apollo Parts 1 and 2 yet, pick those up and read them. And then when Matthew's back, either next week, it's probably going to be the following week, in fact, we'll talk about them then, so then you'll be prepared. Well, that's all I have for you in news today, short news segment. But before I bring in David and Dan to talk about One Constant Star, I do want to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They are the premier source for audiobooks that you'll find online. They've been my personal source for audiobooks for the past 14 years. They got me through my very long commutes in Tokyo many years ago when I used to commute four and a half hours round trip every single day to go to work and get back home. Obviously, I was a lot younger then, had a bit more energy than I do now, but still... That's a tiring trip, and Audible helped me get through it with all the great books they have, which include great Star Trek books. And each week, we like to recommend a book to you, because as a Trek FM listener, you can get any book of your choice absolutely free just for trying Audible. And the book that I'm going to recommend this week, because we're going to be talking about Hikaru Sulu a bit today with David, the book is Cacophony. And Cacophony is written by J.J. Malloy, and it's narrated by George Takei and Simon Jones. Now, if you're old enough to remember when this first appeared in bookstores, it was billed as this 
3D audio adventure, an explosion, in fact, of 3D sound. Well, this is what the story is about. On the planet Stentor, silence is not only golden, it is the key to maintaining peace in a world devastated by a great war. But that calm is shattered when a group known as the Ghazi create a new technology that intercepts old Earth radio signals and rebroadcasts them across the planet, each day the din growing even more deafening. So here you can kind of, well, you get the title, of course, Cacophony, and you can also see where it would lend itself well to this idea of a 3D soundscape and an explosion of 3D sound. Now, when Captain Sulu and the crew of the USS Excelsior are summoned to investigate subspace interference emanating from Stentor, Sulu and his communications officer, Terra Spiro, discover that the Ghazi believe the signals are the voices of the gods. Now, Sulu must somehow convince the Ghazi, without violating the prime directive, of course, that the transmissions are not a divine voice before violence erupts on Stentor once again. So it's a really interesting concept for a story, and you can get it absolutely free. All you need to do is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up for the trial. If at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose. You get to keep this audiobook. That's yours. But I know you're going to want to stick with Audible. I wouldn't have stuck with them for 14 years if they weren't amazing. And I know you'll love them too. And by supporting Audible, you really are helping us keep literary treks coming to you every single week. Because when just one of you tries Audible, the money that we receive from Audible almost covers the cost of hosting literary treks and distributing the show to you for one entire month. So it really is a big help. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Go try them out today, and we really thank you for doing that. And we thank Audible for supporting Literary Treks and the network. Today, we're very honored to have with us once again on the show, author David R. George III, to talk about his new Lost Era novel, One Constant Star. David, welcome back to Literary Treks. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And also joining us today, because Matthew is away on his secret mission, (laughs) we have Dan Gunther, who uh, listeners know from some previous shows. Dan, thanks for joining me today as well. Hi, thanks. It's always great to be back. Now, David, this is, it's hard for me to believe it has been almost eight months since you were here on the show with us when we talked about Revelation and Dust, and I don't know where the time has gone. Tell me about it. I've had to write, you know, a novel since then, so. (laughs) That's uh, right. Yeah, time flies. It really does. Well, since then, you have been hard at work refining one constant star, and this is, of course, your first visit to the Lost Era time period since you wrote the Iron and Sacrifice novella from the Captain's Table anthology, Tales from the Captain's Table. And we recently did here on the show to get ready for this book, Serpents Among the Ruins, as well. And here we are again following Demora Sulu, but now as captain of the Enterprise B. Give us a little background to how you came to the premise of this story and how much of it was something you wanted to follow up on from Serpents Among the Ruins and Iron Sacrifice and how much of it was just something new that you've always wanted to do with the characters. Well, it was a combination of things, really. Uh, I think driving it fundamentally was the fact that I did want to revisit Demora Sulu 
and in particular as captain of the Enterprise, since the only time we really saw her as captain of the Enterprise, she wasn't actually on the Enterprise. So she was dealing with personal uh, things in uh, Iron and Sacrifice that you mentioned. So I really wanted to revisit them more. I have a very uh, incorrect but nevertheless highly refined sense of propri uh, propriety about Demora. I feel very proprietary towards her because I feel like I've gone a long way to defining the character in my work. Obviously, she was in she was a character in the movie Generations, so I didn't create Demora. But um, she also appeared in Peter David's The Captain's Daughter. But I think I really explored her. Uh, Quite a bit in, in um, Serpents Among the Ruins, and maybe most especially in Iron and Sacrifice, because that was really a personal story that I think revealed a lot about the character. So I wanted to go back to Demora. I also have been writing an awful lot of 24th century Star Trek fiction lately. Revelation and Dust, as you mentioned before that, was Plagues of Night and Rays of the Dawn. I did sneak a, a Star Trek uh, 23rd century novel in there called Allegiance and Exile. But whenever I do any of those things, there's heavy continuity that you have to deal with, um, some of my own making. And I just had uh, a desire for a break from that. Um, that and, and a lot of political writing lately in the Star Trek universe, everything with the Typhon Pact and all of that. So. Um, I wanted to visit, revisit Demora, and I wanted to do something that wasn't heavy on continuity, or as heavy on continuity, and and try and avoid maybe some uh, some of the political stuff that I've been doing lately, just for a break, just for a change, and so that all kind of pointed me to the Lost Era. So uh, I, I just uh, at first didn't know if I was going to involve Captain Harriman in the story, uh, who had stepped down as the commander of the Enterprise. But as I got into the story, it, 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 there was uh, something that availed itself, a plot point that availed itself of Harriman's participation. So I was happy to include him in there as well, because I also feel very strongly about that character. And again, he appeared in Generations, clearly, and, and Peter David wrote him in The Captain's Daughter and in a, a short story called Shakedown. But I also feel like I've contributed a great deal to the character with Serpents Among the Ruins. So uh, I was happy to revisit Harriman as well. So when I decided uh, to revisit the Lost Era and specifically Demora uh, and then Harriman, you know, I approached my editors and asked if that was something they'd be interested in having me do. And they're very supportive and uh, were happy to, to, to have me do that. So then I just started casting about for the right story. But I was happy to uh, to revisit that uh, that, t that time period in the Star Trek universe. I was glad to see Harriman in there myself because based on, especially because just for us recently having read Serpents Among the Ruins, that relationship between Demora and Harriman was one that at least for me going into One Constant Star, I was very much expecting to be explored further. I think that perhaps in... You, you always resist saying all, but in certainly most first captain, first officer relationships, there's going to be some things you really require, a level of trust, a level of communication. And when you serve together for a lengthy period of time, those things are only going to deepen. So yeah, I would agree that, that 
just by the very nature of how they serve together, Harriman and, and Demora Sulu would be um, be close, have a close relationship, and uh, I was anxious to to see that played out too. I, I wanted to, in particular in this story, I wanted to find out how these people would relate under certain difficult circumstances and and what they would be willing to do one for another. So um, that that was fun to explore. Well, one thing that I uh, I really noticed was that this novel, as you've mentioned, um, kind of sets aside the political stuff for a little bit and has more of a strange new world feel to it, which was uh, kind of refreshing because most of everything we've gotten from this period has been very political heavy. Um, so how did kind of the inception of this story differ from Serpents Among the Ruins? Um, what exactly made you decide to take more of a traditional exploring strange new worlds uh, feel for this one? I've been wanting to go the strange new worlds route for a little while now. I really enjoy the political stuff. The Typhon Pact has been fascinating and, and everything that's attendant with that. I've enjoyed that a great deal. But it's, it's wearying for a writer. And for all I know, it's wearying for readers as well. And of course, Star Trek has a political bent to it to begin with. It's it's always been about something. But at the same time, one of the things that it's about is exploring strange new worlds. It's about mankind's desire to explore, to, to, to expand their body of knowledge. And so I just really wanted to, to sort of get back to that. And actually, I don't really feel like I did. I mean, I did get away from the political aspect of it. But while the story starts out sort of as an exploratory mission, it kind of ends up as, I don't know, more action-oriented than I had expected it to be when I started, and um, more of a, a sort of a search and rescue than a straight Strange New Worlds novel. So um, uh, you know, there's, there are different aspects to it. I, I, I don't exactly remember how I came up with Serpents Among the Ruins, so I did that plot. So I'm not exactly sure how my process differed this time. But when I go into a project, particularly novels, I usually like to ask myself questions. And the first thing I ask is, what is it that I want to write about? Well, what is it that I feel like talking about? And very quickly, I came to what I mentioned earlier, which is when people are close, when they're when not just close colleagues, but also have become close friends, what is it that they're willing to do for each other, even if they're not asked? What is it they're willing to do? What is it they're willing to give up? How deep is that bond? And how much does that responsibility drive somebody? How much of a responsibility does somebody feel if they're somebody's friend? It's, it's one thing if you're in a committed romantic relationship, and those questions are pretty easy to answer. But if it's, a, it's something a little bit you know, one step down from that, if it's a friendship, what are you willing to give up? And uh, you know, we see characters in this novel faced with that. That was uh, a good thing to, uh, I think, take a look at, and, and I had fun with it. Yeah, that aspect worked well for me too. One thing that I feel here, and I think where Dan is going with some of this uh, strange new world feel, is the action that you talk about. Felt it reminded me more of sequences that we, we would see in the original series as opposed to something that we've seen in some of the more recent literature. 
But at the same time, as you mentioned, there's the search and rescue and there's the tech angle to it that gives me a bit of a feel of the next generation as well. I was curious how you came about the what drives the story here and this technology behind the story. And this is a little bit of a spoiler. I'm going to try not to give away too much here. But the I, I really loved this story. It really pulled me in. And what was happening here on the planet's surface with this portal was really interesting. And in a way that was a little, you know, we've seen things kind of like this before, but this had a sort of a different component to it where it wasn't like straight phase shifting. There was sort of, it was almost reminding me a bit of like a one-way mirror right? in a sense where someone is on one side and they can see, but the other side it can't. Yeah. And it also reminded me in some ways of elements of say relics where of course you've got the Dyson sphere that has sort of a perimeter where it will suck you in if you get too close. Right. And also the idea, as we move on through the story, of a Starfleet crew happening across another missing ship or another missing crew. What were the inspirations for the technology and just that premise of the story? You know, those kinds of things are the result of wanting to find something you think is kind of cool and that will at the same time serve the story. When I had decided on my themes and my characters, my time frame, the setting, at least in terms of Enterprise B and to some degree Hellespont Station, which is where Harriman is an ambassador at large. That's where he's headquartered. Um, I, I started then thinking about plot. Only after I had all of those, that mix of ingredients, then I think about the plot. Some people might start from plot, some writers might start from plot, and readers might think that you start with plot. And sometimes you can, but I, I typically go the other way. And so when I started thinking about a plot, I actually envisioned something in my head that I thought would be kind of cool. And it doesn't really end up playing out in the novel. I, I, but I started with this image of the Enterprise traveling through space and them finding something out in space. And in the, my, my first notion was something floating out in space. And they go to check out what this thing is, and they find Demora Sulu's name written there, or they see a photograph of her. And it's like, well, wait a minute, how can this be? We've never been here. I've never been here. What's going on here? Is somebody playing with our heads? Or you know? Um, and I, I started with that, and I just sort of it didn't really quite work. I, I couldn't make it work. Um, but as I thought about that, it sort of led me to the technology that you're talking about, and it also gave me a way to transition from the strange new world part of the of this story to you know what I'm calling a search and rescue, um, and and all of that led me into what are these characters going to be willing to do for each other, even when they're not asked? Um, what are they going to What are they going to do? So, um, you know, you're always trying to find something, some sort of cool science fiction concept, and uh, it's not always easy to come up with something original. And, but mostly, you want to find something that engages the reader and that certainly serves the, both the plot and the themes of of what your uh, novel includes. So uh, I hope that I've done that. I try, certainly tried to do that. As I said, it ended up being a 
lot more action-oriented than I actually anticipated initially, which is not necessarily a, a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way it is. And um, I was pretty pleased with the way that the story came out. Well, I think it was a good device because with what we've seen with Demora's character going all the way back to when she was a child and when her mother died when she was six, all the way up until what we've seen in the other stories related to her from time to time, there's this sense of isolation. There's this case where she's been isolated um, and and that was you were able to make that work here as well as a result of, of this technological device. It's interesting that you should mention that because I, I've always been drawn to the sense of isolation of a starship captain. And it goes all the way back to Kirk and really all the way back to the beginning of the series. And one of the early episodes, The Naked Time, where they're, they're suffering from the, the virus they contracted on Psy 2000, which acts like alcohol. And, and so mm-hmm. Spock is concerned that he never told his mother he loved her. And, and Kirk is talking about the isolation of command. The, you know, he, he wants a beach to walk on, no braid on his shoulder, that kind of thing. That has always intrigued me. And it's, it's not a new theme at all. It's obviously it's been around since Star Trek, but it's been around for hundreds of years before that as well. And uh, it's that, that isolation, that loneliness in command, the, the weight of responsibility, is something I've always been drawn to. And so I, I do enjoy writing about that and exploring that. And certainly that was the case with Demora. Yeah, I think that came across uh, quite well. Um, one thing I was curious about was uh, you talk about kind of how there was a focus on more action and that sort of thing. And there's some really impressive action sequences in this novel. Um, again, without wanting to give too much away, uh, the uh, the Excelsior's encounter um, with the gate and the attack of the uh, arachnoids on the uh, on the surface and the shuttlecrafts maneuvering the gate, like they're very very impressive. And I was kind of wondering, are those kind of ideas that you come up with? that you want to feature somehow, or do they grow kind of more organically when you're writing the story? I guess I'm just kind of curious about the process of uh, writing scenes like that. I think for different writers, they take different routes to, uh, to, to something like that. For me, it's something uh, that's kind of more organic. Um, there are times where I have plotted action in my head. I know uh, you know, something that I'm, I'm going to do. But more often than not, I have a goal in mind for the characters or sometimes for the plot. But a lot of times it, it's character arcs. And so I, uh, I know what has to happen, how the characters have to feel, what, they, what, what transitions they have to make. And, uh, or, or the same is true for the story. I know, I, I know that the story has to have a transition from, from, from it being, uh, say, a, a search, a, a, a an exploratory story to a search story. Uh, and, and so I, I make that transition. I know I'm going to make that transition, but sometimes I have no idea how I'm going to make that. And uh, some, some of that comes out of the writing that, that I do in the outline stage, which is really, the, as far as I'm concerned, the most difficult writing to do, or at least for me it is. Writing the novel in, in some ways is sort of like filling in the blanks because you already have that roadmap for yourself, you already have the outline. You're required, because this is a media tie-in entity that's owned by somebody, in this case CBS, 
you have to produce an outline before you can actually start writing the novel because they have to approve it. And in addition to that, Simon Schuster Pocketbooks has to approve it. So um, a lot of times that stuff comes out during the writing of the outline. But it, when I'm doing that, it's an organic thing. Um, and sometimes in, in the best circumstances, that was actually really true with the gate in, in this case, uh, because uh, um, what I needed from from that piece of text that I created just kept building on itself in ways that, that worked for the story. And sometimes you create something and you try and build on it and it just falls apart. You just find out that there are 12 logical holes in it and it just doesn't work. That didn't happen this time. But um, So it happens organically. It doesn't happen as much organically during the actual writing of the novel as it does, as it does during the writing of the outline. But it is, for me, organic. For those listening who really aren't familiar with the actual outlining process versus what we see on the final page, a chapter like when the Excelsior encounters the gate, what would your outline for that look like? You know, how how much detail do you put into it, or or how do you pace that up? Well, I know in this case um, that was I would say maybe half of what ended up half of what is in the book was in the outline. It, just sort of giving a rough measure of it. I mean, I kind of knew roughly what was going to happen. When you get there, you find out that you need to serve some characters because you need to continue their storylines and you have to serve the themes and all of that. Um, well, there were also plenty of times in writing, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily this. I have to really think about it. But um, you have, you'll write, then, first of all, the outline you produce is a narrative outline. It's not like, plot point by plot point, it, mm -hmm. it's when I write an outline, at least, and some, again, some writers may do it differently, it's, it's uh, a narrative. It, it's like it's, you're telling the story, and you really need to describe the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story. You need to describe the character arcs. This is where the characters begin. This is where they end. This is the transitions that they make. And, uh, and then you also want to include sort of the thematic overview and everything. So I'm sort of just writing and telling the story. And so a lot of times there will be specific scenes in the outline that if I don't have all of the details for this scene as it's going to be played out in the novel, I have some details of the scene. Sometimes they're very, very bare bones. I do remember as an example of this, when I wrote the novel, my, the first novel I wrote, the, the 34th Rule, there was a scene in which I knew that Cisco and Jake, his son, had to have a conversation about racism. And that's all I knew. I knew what the characters needed to, to come to, the, the conclusions they needed to come to, the things they needed to think, the doubts they needed to have. I just knew that there had to be this conversation. I didn't know where it was going to take place, didn't know exactly what was going to be said. And then when I ended up writing the, the novel, when I got to that chapter, I just, again, organically, just started writing, having set the scene in Ebbets Field, uh, uh, the baseball stadium for the Brooklyn Dodgers in, in the 40s and 50s, when, and where Jackie Robinson, the first African-American baseball player in the major leagues, played. And it just, so there was a, a thematic coherence between where I set the scene and, um, and what, the, what the characters see, what the reader sees, and what had to happen in the scene to serve both the characters and the themes of the story. So that's how it's organic for me, and 
Um, but that outlining is the hard part because that's the blank page. I mean, you're facing a blank page when you start writing a novel, but at least you have a roadmap. And that's a lot more than when you start writing the outline in which you just have a bunch of ephemeral ideas. One thing that really interested me was uh, the characters that make up the crew of the Enterprise B. And I was curious, in Star Trek, generally a lot of times you get a lot of characters that are kind of already established. In this case, and in the case of your previous Lost Era novel, you had to kind of create the command crew of the Enterprise B from scratch. What was the biggest challenge in doing that? Well, just creating an entire command crew or even a good chunk of command crew is a daunting task. We've seen a million different types of characters. Well, there are even a million types of different characters. There are a handful of, of archetypes, and we've seen all of them, not just in Star Trek, but in other um, uh, entertainment, other, other movies and books and TV shows. We've, we've seen them. We all know them. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a daunting task. And sometimes you want to figure out uh, the, the role that, that they'll be playing and whether or not they would be best served being you know, the, the stoic, ultra-serious, uh, you know, who doesn't fraternize with subordinates type, or the gregarious, uh, easy-to-smile, informal command type. Um, and sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes you, you always need to create a specific, a character in specific. You want to create somebody who's not wishy-washy, who's not ill-defined. The reader should know who they are. But sometimes it doesn't matter what characteristics you give to the character so long as they then play into the story. And sometimes I'm, uh, I'm surprised by what happens. As I wrote One Constant Star, for example, Demora became a serious commander, serious in tone. She doesn't, um, she doesn't call her subordinates by their given names. She calls them by their rank and their, and their surname. Um, that's a little thing, but it serves to underscore her isolation, uh, the seriousness with which she takes her job, the, the seriousness with which she thinks she has to treat it in certain ways. Um, and I say it's a little thing, but it, it's, it, it starts to give to me an idea of who this character is. And certainly a new Demora from before, from generations, from the captain's daughter, from my own work. But this is many years, you know, this is eight years late, uh, you know, past Serpents Among the Ruins, so people change. Uh, she's been thrust into a new role, so that, you know, ha has that changed her? Well, we see that it has, at least, maybe not the core of who she is, but it's changed the way she behaves on the bridge. She's not nearly as informal as when the in fairly informal Harriman was in command. So uh, that's an interesting thing. So I get to explore these characters as I'm writing. And sometimes they just, I guess, have a life of their own. It just fits into the story in certain ways, and you, you just run with it. Sometimes you do that, and it doesn't work, and you have to backtrack and start over again. But in this case, you know, Demora became who she was, and uh, it just seemed to work. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting choice. Um, I especially noticed it when uh, in the shuttlecraft when the ensign asks her a fairly personal question and her kind of immediate shock at at uh, having her ask that was interesting and it's 
kind of not really something we've seen a lot before. I mean, Picard kind of started that way, but, you know, even he says will and that kind of thing. And you want to try and explore things that haven't been explored before, even if they're just little characteristics of people, even if you're just looking at certain um, types of people or, or certain people, people behave in certain situations. You want to try and explore, you want to try and give to the reader things that they haven't seen before, at least they haven't seen in the Star Trek milieu. They, you, want to, you want to just be different. You want to see if there's something else to explore, some other uh, part of the human equation that you, you want to mine. And um, as I said, I didn't expect Demora to be that way. It didn't even occur to me. But as I got into writing the actual novel, because this wasn't really in the outline, this part of it, um, she did become that isolated, more formal person. And, and uh, you know, there's a scene early on in the novel that takes place well before she's captain of Enterprise, well before even Serpents Among the Ruins. And she's much more informal. She's much more, um, uh, you know, willing to talk about her personal life and things like that. But, you know, as I say, people change when their circumstances change sometimes. And it's a change in behavior and maybe a change. I don't think it's a change in her values. I think it's a change in her behavior. And I think it's a change in how she sees her responsibilities how she decides that it's incumbent upon her to um, to meet those responsibilities. It's, it's interesting, and it's, it's fun and fascinating to explore. It is interesting to see how she evolves, especially, I think, being put in the command chair changes you as well, right? And I also feel like with Demora that maybe when she's younger, she's a bit more informal, but if you look at the events of her life, again, losing her mother, feeling like her father didn't really have time for her and was just there, but then now she fears that she has, or she believes she's lost her father as well. And on top of that, um, everyone thought she was dead and the captain's daughter as well. It feels maybe that over time she would adapt this more formal command style to separate herself from her crew because she realizes how quickly you can lose someone and you maybe you want to shelter yourself from that pain. Well, absolutely. I think that's a really major part of it. And it really sort of speaks to where she gets to, I think at the very end of the novel too, in, in maybe doing a little bit of reevaluation uh, when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it's interesting um, because you mentioned the fact that she she feels she's lost her father. Um, I hinted at that in Serpents Among the Ruins. There were a couple of lines I seeded throughout Serpents to suggest that Hikaru Sulu was dead. And I remember when I wrote them at the time, I meant for him to be dead. Um, uh, of course, I don't make all of those decisions in the Star Trek universe. They weren't taken out. They were left in. But of course, it wasn't anything absolutely definitive in Serpents. And so... I think he ended up showing up, maybe, in some other novels that took place after Serpents. I think there was some question about whether it was Hikaru or not. But because I had, had uh, mentioned, in at least in passing in Serpents Among the Ruins, that Demora was unable to speak with her father, and, and the, the real hint was that it was because he was dead, um, I, I thought, you know what, this is a good time to explore that, too, and to take a look at, 
at how she's dealing with it and how she dealt with it and um, where she's at emotionally with that. So, especially as you said, because she lost her mother as a young when uh, when Tamora was a young child. Right. Well, actually, speaking of loss, um, Commander Linage, and I really hope I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> um, one thing I really you said any way you want. I pronounce it <laughs> Linage, but that's okay. Perfect. <laughs> oh, well, Commander Linoge, then I will bow to your uh, expertise. <laughs> um, one thing I really enjoyed uh, was, well, not enjoyed, I guess, so much, but um, the found depiction of, yeah. yeah, I found very interesting, was uh, the depiction of her um, uh, injury. And there were a number of things in the novel that I noticed that made it feel very genuine, and that was kind of it kept coming up over and over and over again that she would, you know, compensate or realize it, that it's missing, that her arm's missing and, you know, um, having to deal with that, which, I mean, I don't have personal experience, but I would imagine losing a limb would be very much like that. You would be constantly being reminded of that every second of every day. And I was just kind of wondering, like, were there any real life experiences of people, you know, or, what informed that aspect of the story? You know, that's an interesting question. I would say no, really, there isn't any personal experience, nobody I know. Um, although that's not entirely true. I do remember speaking with um, some of my wife's extended family. Actually, was that? Might not even be her extended family. It might have been a friend of the family's. Um, and somebody's father had to deal with that. Um, having had a part of a leg amputated and having to deal with um, what it took to to keep it from getting infected on a daily basis and that kind of thing. Of course, we're, we're more technically advanced in the 24th century, so that really doesn't become an issue. And it really, that's in some ways an uninteresting issue because I, for me, the more interesting issue is the emotional component of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess even sort of the intellectual component of it, really the emotional component. And, and I think that's what you want to do to connect with readers, is engage the characters on an emotional level and maybe explore things that they don't have experience with. And sometimes we have ideas about the way people would behave in certain circumstances. And part of that, I think, a large part of that is informed by our entertainment. Because if you see a certain situation arise in a movie or read it in a book, see it on a TV show, if you see it happen over and over and over again, if you see it happen a hundred times, just something, you know, whatever, somebody goes through a stop sign or whatever, or, you know, driving a car in a book or in a movie or a TV show, um, and 99 times out of a hundred that you see that, the car then gets hit by another car. Um, then when you actually are reading something or watching something or even writing something and you get to that car going to the stop sign, you always expect, because you see it all the time, for the, for the car then to get hit by another car. I, try, I, I like to make sure I do that as little as possible. I don't want to, it's not a question of not doing the conventional, it's a, it's a question of not wanting to retread the same in some sense, mindless stuff that we've seen before. Sometimes it's not mindless. Sometimes there, there is value in these things that we've seen a hundred right. times, a thousand times. But there's, a, I think, a lot more to be mined elsewhere 
in the, the different next event that happens. And so, you know, when I dealt with this, I didn't have personal experience, direct experience, or even indirect experience. But certainly, I, in the course of writing this, I read about about people who've lost limbs, um, and I just I knew the I knew I know Linoge pretty well. I did create her. I know her pretty well. I know what's going on in her head, um, and I just tried to imagine how she would react if she were a real person, and this was a real event that had happened to her. And mm -hmm. it's not just how it impacts her. How does it impact the people around her? You know, right. um, because this is a real thing. And obviously, with the great tech that we have in the 24th century, we've seen people, you know, Nog got his leg, got a, a replacement leg. But we still saw on Deep Space Nine that there was a psychological impact to him. Definitely. And so I wanted to explore some of that with Winoj. And it was, uh, it was very satisfying for me to do that. I like getting into the real emotional beats of a character. Definitely. That's uh, like Dan said, helps really make the story feel genuine. Yeah, I think you did a really great job writing this particular storyline in the midst of everything else that was going on. Well, I appreciate that. I, it's, it's the way to connect with readers, really, is, is to get to the emotional heart of things. Let me ask you a question here. This is not so much about the plot of the story, but we had the question here about pronunciation of the name, Linoge. Hmm. How do you name your characters? Because we talk about fleshing out this entire bridge crew of the Enterprise B. So there's a lot of characters to create. You've got a lieutenant on there, Lieutenant Rainbow Sky, a Native American, which reminded me of Bear Claw from the old Star Trek comics <laughs> a little bit. And then there's a, you know, you have a character named Tijen as well. Are there any characters in the story that are named after people you know? As Yeah, you know, reference? I do that sometimes. Um uh, my sister's name is Jen, so okay. that was an easy one. Um, a lot of times I don't do that. I just I just sort of come up with names on the fly. Sometimes I'll be writing, and I'll know that I'm going to have a particular character, uh, you know, some new character that I've created, and I know their position and what they do in the story, but I haven't given them a name yet. And sometimes when I get to that point where I'm introducing them, I just, I just write down a name, and a lot of times it just sticks. That's it. Um, Sometimes I have to think about it a little bit. Sometimes I like to consider uh, characters of the species. For example, I mean, a name like O'Brien is not likely to be a Japanese name. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I look at, um, for Linoge, she, her species was represented in Deep Space Nine by a character, although I don't think they ever said the name on screen, her name was listed in, in the couple episodes that she was in in the script, and it was Rionoj, R-I-O-N-O-J. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't subscribe to the notion that everybody in a particular species have to have, have has to have a similar name. But I do want to come up with a name that doesn't sound like, well, that doesn't go, you know. Right. Um, so, um, it's an interesting process. It's usually fairly painless. And um, you know, so occasionally I'll come up with something that I just that doesn't work for me, and I'll, I'll actually go back and change it to something else. I actually wrote a uh, wrote a character in the novel Provenance of Shadows, where I can't remember the character's name, 
But after I was finished writing this novel, which was 225,000 words, it's an enormous, wow. first draft was 1,100 pages, it was just a wow. gigantic project. After I'd finished, one of the characters in it turned out there was somebody who came into the limelight during the time I was writing it, and he was a, a guy who was um, peddling steroids to certain athletes. I'm like, well, okay. great, I don't want this guy to have this name. <laughs> so, right. I, yeah, so I, I actually went out and went back into the novel and changed it before I went to production because it just, that didn't feel right. Yeah. But the thing I have more, that's sort of more problematic for me, two things. One is naming starships, or just using starships, actually, because I'm of the opinion that we have way too many starships in Starfleet. There are like 75,000 ships in Starfleet. That's crazy. <laughs> right. Uh, because yeah. writers constantly are, are coming up with new names. And so I always try to, um, I do come up with new star. I like, I enjoy the process of naming starships. But I also try and reuse starships, uh, that either that other writers have created, that have been created in the show or in the films, or that I've created in previous novels. So, um, you know, I also try, this, this doesn't happen in Star Trek a lot, but I also try and be true to the, class name for a vessel. Yeah. And the same way that all, all of the runabouts of Deep Space Nine, the Danube class runabouts, every runabout is named after a river. I continue that, you know. So, um, you know, I try, I try and pay attention to that. The other thing is creating the names of species. And that's always kind of interesting. I always, not always, I, oftentimes though I try, I want to try and come up with something that's a little bit different that, that kind of feels alien, that doesn't doesn't seem quite right, doesn't seem quite human. But at the same time, you have human readers, so there's only, I mean, I could put a, a name of a species together that's got no vowels in it, but that's not very reader-friendly. It may right. look strange, but that doesn't really help people a lot as they try and get through this novel. I could probably kick them out of this, the story as they're reading. So um, It does, actually, because, I mean, I come across things like that sometimes in general, SF and you it it does make you stumble as you're reading because if you don't know how to pronounce the name it just after a while i don't know you kind of absorb it i guess you see the name of the race or the character and you go with it but i'm glad you do try to make it something we can wrap our minds around you want to try and do that yeah i mean uh and that's why i mean there are times more often than i than me trying to figure out what to name a character there are many more times i have to try and figure out how to spell it because i actually try and <laughs> spell it in a way that admits for for little difference in pronunciation among readers. I want most of the readers to, to be able to, when they say this in their head, they're saying it the same way as all the other readers, and as me. You know, yeah, I mean, and I like it, that when that's not the case, there's one point in this novel where there is a, a questionable name like that, and you actually do have someone say, and they pronounced it this way, so that we know oh, as you know, a reader... It's fascinating in the novel, I mean, it's fascinating to me anyway, but apropos of what you're talking about, in the, one of my novels, Twilight, I introduced, or reintroduced, because he was an infant in, a, in the original Star Trek show, um, Admiral Akaar. Right. Yeah. And his name is spelled A-K-A-A-R. Yeah. But we already had a character, a canon character in Deep Space Nine, the first minister of Bajor, whose name was Shakar. S H 
A-K-A-A-R. <laughs> so the last five letters of Shakar's name are exactly the five letters of Akaar's name, and they're pronounced wildly differently. And so yeah, we did, did Twilight here on the show not too long ago, and oh. we we yeah got into the pronunciation of Akaar. Yeah. Well, and I'm I actually pretty sure that in that novel somewhere early on when Kira meets yeah. Akaar for the first time, yeah. that I mm -hmm. I have somebody think Kira probably that you, you know, did. Oh, he pronounces it differently or whatever. Yeah, Just, you, you know, you, you did. again, it's all about reader friendliness. You're trying to connect with the reader on all levels on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, and you want to make sure that they're right there with you, that you're, it's your job, it's my job as a, as a writer to, to guide the readers along through my story and for them to, to, to see what I see and to hear what I hear. Uh, I mean, I need to do that. I come up with a story and then I need to convey it. So that's all part of it. Make it accessible as possible, basically. Absolutely. It's not always easy to do uh, in a way that, doesn't sound clunky. Right. Um, I mean, you you can't just sort of stop and say, "Oh, by the way, this character is pronounced Akar, not Akar." <laughs> <Right. laughs> so you have to find a way to do that that, that doesn't, again, take the reader out of the out of the novel. Well, we talked earlier a little bit about uh, the theme of responsibility, and um, that comes through a lot in this novel. For example, of course, uh, Demora Sulu feeling responsible for the officer she's left behind. Uh, Admiral Harriman feeling responsible for um, his colleague of many years. And I was just wondering if you want to talk a little bit about um, how that idea kind of became central to this novel. You know, I, as I said earlier, I always try and figure out what it is I feel like talking about. Because Star Trek is thematic in nature, I think. Um, not always, but it, it grew up as a series of morality tales really, in the 60s. And, and the best Star Trek, in my opinion, the best Star Trek, certainly for me, is Star Trek that's about something. And it could be about something grand. It could be about something really important, like racism or war or you know, what have you. Or it could be about something small, but that can be individually important to people. And responsibility is something that's important at, at an individual level, but it's also something that I think people understand in general. We grow up with responsibilities. When, when, when parents have children, there's an innate responsibility that they have to them. And you know, as we live throughout our lives and we make friends and colleagues and, and romantic attachments, certainly the question of what it is that we need to do to satisfy other people, to satisfy what we think of as our responsibilities, um, is, is really important. And so, I, I don't know, I, I asked myself, what is it that I felt like talking about? And somehow, the notion of responsibility came up. And it really, it might have been when I was trying to figure out how to, how, if I wanted to, and if I could, fit Harriman into the story. And, uh, of course, when Harriman is called upon in the tale to, to do something for his former colleague and his still friend, Demora Sulu, He's, it's not just a simple question because he has a wife. He has a wife of eight years who he loves, who, who loves him. And, um, of course, he has a responsibility to her as well. And, with, mm -hmm. you know, when you have multiple responsibilities, how do you choose? What outweighs what? Right. And what are the factors that, that go into making a decision like that? So, um, you know, when I when I 
hit on a theme, like in this case responsibility, um, and I start thinking about it, and I start asking questions like that, even if I don't have the answers, I think, oh, okay, now I've got something to deal with because I've got questions, and, and so the readers will have questions, and so I'll be able to um, to ask have have the questions come up in the in the plot of the story, in the in the, in the themes of the story, and that the and the readers will be able to make up their own minds. They'll see how the characters behave, and you know, it's just again something that Star Trek's very good at, and that's exploration. And in this mm -hmm. case, we're you know exploring the human condition. And the exploration of an issue is really valuable, even if there are no kind of definitive answers to it. Well, I think with respect to something like responsibility, there are lots of answers. Sometimes they don't all go together, and I mean, a lot of right answers. Um, I, I think Harriman would have been justified in doing what he did or in not doing what he did. And that then comes down to why does this character make this decision when he could just as easily have made this other decision and still been justified. So it's exploring individual characters as well. And again, that helps ground things for the reader and it allows them to relate to people. And you know, sometimes people will be, I assume, there are going to be readers out there who go, you know, this is great, Harriman absolutely had to do this. And other readers who might say, no, 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 you can't do that. And have genuinely good reasons why you shouldn't have. So I think that's always good. I think you always want to engage readers, whether they're agreeing with the characters or not. And of course, I'm just there as, in some regards, an impartial observer. Uh, I have to present characters who believe, for good reason, what they believe. I wrote a script once a long time ago that uh, one of its central themes was the morality or immorality of capital punishment. And in the tale, one character was staunchly anti-capital punishment, and one was staunchly pro-capital punishment. Now, I, I hold one of those opinions, but I couldn't let the reader know what my opinion was, because I had to make both of these characters believe and believe for good cause, because they, they were both protagonists. I, I needed to have them be convincing in what they believed. So it was important that my views don't come through because I need the readers to be able to explore, um, in this case it was a script, so it would have been the viewers, to explore you know, these themes and, and make up their own minds and, and not have me get in the way. How difficult is it for you to do that as a writer? And especially now that you have so many books under your belt, how is it for you now compared to when you were a younger writer starting out? I think it's. I think it might be easier now, but it's always been. You know, none of it's easy, but but I, I don't think it's particularly hard either because in my everyday life, I try to put myself in other people's shoes, and I think that's important for people to do. Um, I think I also a long time ago witnessed what I thought was just a very interesting phenomenon, and that's that I would be at a at some sort of gathering, a conference, or a party, or in a class, or, or, or you know, in a, in a conference room, and I would observe people talking. And sometimes, in one conversation, some group conversation, I would hear somebody say something and 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 agree with a particular point of view. And then a week later, two weeks later, I could see the same person 
in a similar conversation in, in a different context, having the st stating the exact opposite point of view, agreeing with somebody who was stating the exact opposite. And I, I saw that happen a lot. And it wasn't because people were changing their minds. It wasn't because people uh, uh, were, were just being polite or whatever. It was that people were seeing both sides of an issue. Um, and maybe at that moment it was just socially better for them to agree than to, to argue, I guess, too. But it was really interesting because I saw people seeing both sides of an issue. And I think that's really important. It doesn't mean you can't come to conclusions. It's important, I think, for people to have opinions and, and for those opinions to be well-founded. But um, I think you need to explore you know, what you think about things. And when you get new information about things, you should, you should re-explore what it is you believe. And I think when you, even short of new information, if you get new perspectives, you should re-explore. And you know, I think that's something that's really served by the way Star Trek stories are told. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the core of Star Trek. That's on our shows on the network here, especially when we discuss episodes. That's the position I always try to take as well is to pull out these different sides, try to see the other side. And, and sometimes people do leave viewing a story differently than they did before. I love when that happens to me. I love when I, you know, I, I have some, well, uh, you know, some, some deeply held opinion about something, and then I get new information that makes me say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, I, I, am I wrong here? Uh, or even, as I said, just not even new information, but a new perspective on things. Oh, I never thought about it from that point of view. And from that point of view, hmm, that doesn't seem quite right now, does it? I, I, you know, I have a lot of opinions about a lot of things, and I know lots of stuff. One of the things I know is I don't know even close to everything, and um, I'm delighted when I find out that I'm wrong about something because then I can try and be right about it. You know, mm -hmm. so it's a fascinating uh, um, exploration of just humanity itself, and uh, you know, it's great that I get to do that in, in the novel. Well, I have one more question for you about One Constant Star before we wrap up here. I notice a theme here, and I don't know if you were going for this or not, so I wanted to find out. But I feel like fate pulls Demora, Sulu, and Hikaru Sulu together. She is brought to him when she's six years old, when her mother dies, and he didn't know that she existed. Later on in the events where he's gone back, the events that would have taken place in Star Trek Four, and she's still there. I believe that's in the captain's daughter, right? Um, she thinks he's gone. They're back together. Mm -hmm. Then later we we feel that we believe that she has died, and then through improbable events, uh, she's rescued again, and they're brought back together. And then in this story, through a very improbable set of circumstances, she thinks that he's dead, and here they are again. Is is there fate involved here? Did you ever think about that, that something pulls these two people together over and over? Well, I would say that what I thought about was coincidence. Um, and I maybe I failed at this, but I tried to make, I, and I did this perhaps too subtly, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I just knew it well enough. I, I tried to make it so that the coincidence that you're talking about in the book or the fate that you're talking about in mm -hmm. the book was was not all that grand. It's it's you know an unexplored part of space. This is the last time we heard from a starship. 
uh, you know, at some point we're sending another starship out there. And so I guess the, you know, like the big coincidence, the big perhaps fate is that, oh, it turns out to be Demora's ship uh, right. going after, uh, going through the same region of space where, where her father's ship was lost. I, I didn't want that to be too big of a coincidence, and so I tried subtly to indicate that it isn't that big of a deal. But maybe I didn't get away with that. Well, I'm not. Um, I'm not really saying that so much in terms of this story. I'm just sort of trying to. I'm just looking at all of Demora's life, and I'm just wondering if there was some thread there that maybe you, it maybe it had crossed your mind in the past. I didn't really think about it in those terms. Not not in the in terms of fate. You know, it's mm-hmm. interesting too because. Certainly, as a writer, you want to try and convey not just the scenes of a story and and the character arcs of a story and the plot points of a story. You want to carry feeling with it, and you want to you oftentimes do want to purvey a certain point of view. But it's really interesting when readers find something else in there that perhaps you didn't think about consciously, perhaps you didn't think about even subconsciously. Perhaps it, it's just it. It's sort of subtext that you didn't inject. It's subtext that happens to be an artifact of what you've written. And um, I, sometimes that can be fortuitous. Though. Sometimes that can be just uh, just wonderful. I didn't, to answer your question, really think consciously about the notion of fate with these two characters. Mm-hmm. But I certainly, now that you've brought it up and, and outlined why you thought about that, it makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, of course, then this question of you know is there such a thing as fate and all of that. But, sure, that's another question. Uh, yeah, but you know it's it's yeah. I mean it's that you make you make a, a good point. Yeah, well that makes it a great story. I mean, and great characters because there's enough there in their history, and then and then in the story as well to to really bring these things to life for some readers where maybe others don't. So, yeah, it's funny. You know, it's interesting, too, because it's funny, even though these characters may be bound up in some way, and certainly, I mean, in, in the most natural way, they're a father and daughter, no matter that he wasn't there at the beginning, he didn't even know of her existence until she was six years old, and, and then maybe he was away too much. Um, in their adult lives, they haven't spent a lot of time together either. I mean, they do see each other occasionally, and they do... True send missives to each other. But at the same time, he's a captain of a starship. She's a first officer and then a captain of a starship. I mean, she starts out, you know, she progresses through her, the ranks up to captain. Um, so, And they're not on the same ship. So they don't, uh, they, they don't spend a lot of time together. Um, but certainly that doesn't lessen their bond. And in fact, you go the other uh, important relationship or one of the other important, important relationships in the novel between Demora. Zulu and uh, John Harriman, and they don't see each other a lot either, but that does not change the fact that they're very close friends. So, um, yeah, I mean, fate, fate's an interesting thing to think about when you, because of the, the progression of Demora's life with her father. I think that's interesting. Um, but, you know, no matter what, they certainly are bound together by the fact of him being her father. Yeah. So you recently teased about a 24th century Star Trek novel that you're currently working on and even mentioned that there is a possibly a follow-up in the works. Is there any chance you can tell us anything more about this project? Maybe a follow-up to a particular Deep Space Nine thread? Um, <laughs> whatever could you be talking about? Oh, I, Go I, ahead. I, I couldn't possibly tell you. <laughs> 
Well, okay, the um the ending of Revelation and Dust, right? <laughs> oh yeah. I do want to follow up on well, I guess a couple of plot threads from Revelation and Dust. You know, I, I think um the Deep Space Nine novels have done a and I'm not talking about mine specifically, just this Deep Space Nine novels in general, have done a pretty good job of emulating the television series because Deep Space Nine on the air was a, a show that had running storylines through it that didn't get resolved, uh, you know, in, in one episode or two episodes, but, but played out over, over many episodes, sometimes multiple seasons. And um, e even as they resolved some threads, they, they, they started new ones. And novels have done, a, I, I think, a good job of emulating that and, and being serial while telling individual stories, keeping individual story threads alive. And certainly, I tried to do that in Revelation and Dust. And even if I don't end up picking up those threads, I hope and anticipate that somebody will at some point. Um, I, I am working on a 24th century novel at the moment, and I have been talking with Baca Books about uh, another book after that. Um, and I think that's going to happen. I don't have a contract for it yet, so it's not nothing's for sure until you've signed on the dotted line. But I think I'll be doing another 24th century novel after the one I'm working on. I, I, I it might. If I said more than that, I think my editor might kill me. <laughs> well, fair <She> enough. <laughs> what about beyond Star Trek? Is there anything that you're working on that you would like to tell us about? You know, it's really, thank you for asking that. And the answer is yes. At the same time, I, I, I'm reluctant to say much of anything because um, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a writer in a certain way uh, of a certain type, whereas can't really talk about things while I'm working on them, or I kind of uh -huh. lose the desire to mm -hmm. write them because now I've already told the story. And that's uh, from from a personal perspective, not so much the editors telling you you can't say anything yeah, right now, but just yeah, from absolutely. a creative standpoint. I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I do like. I'm happy to tease. Uh, you know, I'm happy to say, hey, I was, I was writing a lost era book when I was writing one constant star. But um, yeah, I, actually, there is one thing that I did recently that uh, I'm excited about, which was. Um, there was a there's a an anthology a couple of anthologies coming out called Athena's Daughters and Apollo's Daughters and in Athena's Daughters it's a genre anthology science fiction and fantasy short stories and all of them feature strong female protagonists and all of the stories in Athena's Daughters are written by women in Apollo's Daughters there's strong female protagonists in every story but they're all written by men. And uh, I was very pleased to have been asked to write one of those stories. And I wrote a story called um, the, uh, the Dark Arts Come to Hebron. And it will be out, I believe, in September. And uh, there's some other names that I think uh, Star Trek readers will recognize. David Mack. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think there were a couple of others. People who have contributed to the Star Trek universe who are are represented in the novel and the anthology. So, but I, that and that was uh, you know that's a tale that I wrote that uh, takes place in 1694. So uh, hmm. I eschew the 24th century for for the 17th. 
<laughs> Interesting. This is I've seen a number of stories with this focus in the past couple of years. My a friend of mine, Athena Andreatis, who wrote the biology of Star Trek some years ago, she just edited an anthology. I think it was last year, the year before. Time goes so quickly for me. Called the other half of the sky, which was also about strong women protagonists as well, and she commissioned all the original stories for that. I think it's a great idea because uh, I think overall you could make a, a re pretty reasoned argument that women have been under underrepresented in genre mm -hmm. fiction. Well, I think that's certainly changed in recent years and maybe even recent decades. Um, when I was asked to be a part of a, an anthology that featured strong female protagonists, I was happy to be invited, but at the same time, I was like, eh, no big deal, because Star Trek, of course, is rife with strong female characters. Right. And uh, yeah. Demora Sulu, anybody? Kira Nerys, <laughs> anybody? So, uh, you know, um, it, it's not something I'm new to. I, I try very hard in my Star Trek novels and in all my work, but particularly in the Star Trek novels, to live up to what I see as Star Trek ideals, which is... It's not even about tolerance, because I think tolerance sort of implies, um, okay, you're not you're you're not as good as me, but I'll put up with you anyway. Right. I, 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 right. I, I like the word inclusiveness better. That's uh, good. I think Star Trek is just uh, a very inclusive world. Everybody gets a seat at the table, and I love that. That's one of the, it's fundamentally the most important thing about Star Trek to me. And so when I write Star Trek, I really Want to, I, I make sure that I have strong female characters. Mm -hmm. and, no, I, I mean strong female characters. I, I make sure that I have homosexual characters, straight characters. Um, I mm -hmm. make Demora Suva bisexual, as it turns out. Um, yeah, I noticed that. Didn't even realize that until I was writing it. Um, I, you know, I, forget about black and white and yellow. It, people are blue and green, and <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, which is great. I, I think that really is the most important aspect of Star Trek. I think it's one of the two reasons that Star Trek continued to be popular nearly 50, 50 years after it was born, and that's that we see this picture of a positive future in, in which nobody is denigrated or excluded because of superficial characteristics. And, uh, and of course, the other reason that Star Trek is so popular is it has wonderful characters that, that people really relate to and love. Um, but to me, that, that that notion of inclusiveness is the most important thing. I like that word choice. Yeah, definitely. Well, mm -hmm. David, thanks so much for giving us so much of your time tonight. I really appreciate it. If people want to keep up with what you're working on or want to talk to you, are there any places they can go? Yeah, I have a Facebook page for my writing. It's facebook.com slash David R. I'm sorry, slash D-R-G-I-I-I. And I'm on Twitter as well, David R. George III. Um, so people can uh, contact me that way or just watch out for announcements. And I hope to be announcing some things fairly soon, but um, that partly depend on my editors and my work schedule and all of that. But um, anyway, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate your time as well. Absolutely. Well, and we look forward to having you on again in the near future. Hopefully it won't be eight months this time. Hopefully not. <laughs> Take good. care, gentlemen. Okay. Thank you, David. Take care. Thanks a lot. Well, Dan, thank you also for sitting in for Matthew today and helping me talk to David about One Constant Star. 
you and Matthew are far more knowledgeable about the literature than I am. So <laughs> I'm always happy when I have one of you by my side to help me through the discussion here. If uh, people want to find you on the interwebs and talk Star Trek lit with you, read your reviews and such, where can they go? Well, I'm all over the internet, uh, easy to find. On Twitter, uh, my um, I'm at TrekLitReviews, uh, facebook.com slash TrekLitReviews, really easy to find. Um, any of those, and of course, my blog where I review Star Trek novels, and you can just find that at TrekLit.com. Excellent. And then also, you're published on TrekCore. Yes, that's right. Um, my uh, reviews of new novels get published on TrekCore, as well as uh, written reviews with authors. Excellent. All right. Good. Well, we look forward to having you back really soon with us here on the show, Dan. Hopefully, you'll be back with us fairly often, and we're going to keep making our way through more novels. Well, as always, I love being here. So anytime you want me, I'm here. Absolutely. We'll have you back soon. All right. Well, you have a good night there too, Dan. Thank you. You too. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the discussion today with David. And thanks again to Dan for sitting in with me as well. But One Constant Star isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network over the past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I mean, like, like it's, it's been talked about, you know, by Shatner that he's like, oh, I wanted to have the Enterprise find God or something like that. Well, how does that work? You know, well, right. You know, and it's like, well, it doesn't work the way you're doing it in this movie. Earl Grey. What if it was like a geeky tween boy? Data, Data, where are you? <laughs> They're just like, shut that off. <laughs> Mr. Data, I've got a problem. The Ready Room. When they finally do get rid of Decker, it's on Kirk's personal authority as captain of the Enterprise. And like it seems to me if you're, say, a captain in the U.S. Navy and an admiral takes command of your ship, you can't just like get rid of him because of your personal authority as captain of the ship. The Orb. And again, it's, it's something, as, you know, as we said before, the system is not set up to allow him to express that idea in any other way. But by the spectacle of this trial, which would presumably be impossible to hide, it is a way for him to express this alternate viewpoint that maybe the, the morality of his society is uh, is under threat. To the journey! We are here to talk to you about a very heavy-handed topic. This is kind of a dark area for us. No, I'm just kidding. We're talking about death and Voyager. Commentary, Trek stars. When they fall out the pod people and they say, why, what year is it? And Data says, why, it's the Earth year 2364. I fell off my chair 47 <laughs> times. It's like, they just put the, oh, well, okay, okay. Warp 5. Archer doesn't close himself off to any possibility. He takes the evidence and comes to the best choice that he can. And that's not always easy for anyone, but that's the kind of person that Degra is, too. Melodic Treks. In fact, it had two versions of the theme, one which ran from seasons one to three and one which ran from season four onwards. Now, some people prefer the first music with the poignancy of the lone trumpet, others prefer the second incarnation. Continuing mission. If we were to sort of able to rewrite the canon, the uniforms we've got, they were the uniforms in the middle of Enterprise and TOS. But because they were designed during a time when peace wasn't as prosperous as it is in the original series, the uniforms did have a bit more of a militaristic look to them. 
literary treks. You know what I love about comics, though, sometimes is what happened here in this panel with Beverly and Troy. Clearly, Troy's stunt double wandered into the scene. I say, is that Troy? <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find them anywhere you get your podcast. We're in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're on Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, also on Spreaker, BlackBerry, Swell, and even on SoundCloud. So just look up Trek.fm or the name of the show that you want to listen to, and you'll find us there. And of course, you can go to our website and go to the show page and stream the show from there using the SoundCloud player. And you can grab the RSS link and drop that into your favorite podcatcher app as well. If you're an iTunes user, be sure to drop by our artist section in the iTunes store. We have nearly a thousand episodes here on the network now, so there's lots of great interviews with authors, interviews with other Star Trek creators, plus lots of episode discussions, character analyses, all kinds of things for you to listen to. A lot of it's been around for two or three or almost four years and in our iTunes section, we try to help that bubble up to the surface as we create themed columns and we, we change those out from time to time. And it's a great way to find older content on the network. The quickest way to get there is to simply go to iTunes.com slash TrekFM in your browser, and that will open up our section right there in your iTunes application. Another great way to sample all of the content on the network is to subscribe to the Trek.fm Complete Master Feed. This is a feed that contains every episode of every show that we do. So you're getting two, three, occasionally even four new pieces of content every single day in that feed. It's a really great way to find out what's going on on our different series shows, on our special shows for music and other creative and science and everything. So check that out. You can get that in most places where you get your podcasts as well. If you'd like to share your thoughts on today's show, I would love to hear from you. There are a number of ways that you can do that. You can go to our website at trek.afilm contact. There's a form there. Just choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also find us on Twitter. Our username is trekfm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com trekfm. On Google+, we have a community. Just search G Plus Communities for trek.afilm, and you'll find us. On our website, we also have forums. Those are at trek.afilm forums. You can send us a voicemail through the website. And if you want to talk to me or Matthew directly, which we would love for you to do, we'd love to talk Star Trek with you, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find Matthew on Twitter at MattRushing02. And then elsewhere on the network, you can find both of us together on The Orb, which is all about Deep Space Nine. You can find me on Warp 5, which is about Enterprise, Matterstream, about the world inspired by Star Trek, The Ready Room with lots of other hosts, which is about all of Star Trek, Hyper Channel is our new show every day where I share my thoughts with you on some news items, and there's Continuing Mission where we interview the people who create fan series and Star Trek video games and audio dramas and all sorts of fan creations. 
Before I let you go, I would like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Go pick up Cacophony, which I talked about in the news segment, or any other book you want. Get it absolutely free. If at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, you get to keep that book, so there's really nothing to lose. But there's a lot to gain. You'll get great selection every month, great prices, and you really will be helping us keep literary treks coming to you every single week. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm to get that free audiobook. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And we really thank you for doing that and supporting the show. And we thank Audible for their support of literary treks as well. Well, thanks again to David for joining us today and also to Dan for sitting in in the discussion as well. And Matthew will be back soon and we'll get on to those comics that I keep promising you that we'll review. So thanks everyone for listening and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.